So we're going to be in chapters 24, 25, 26 this morning. We're almost to the end. It ends in chapter 28. And so we're going to unpack really the last days of Paul's ministry, not his life, because Luke doesn't end with Paul's death. We know that Paul eventually died. Uh, tradition has that he died at the hands of Nero. Um, we uh, have an interesting ending, and we'll talk about it more next week, but Luke doesn't tell us what happens to Paul. He just kind of wraps it up. And it's almost like um, it's a cliffhanger. You know, it's like when you, you watch any kind of a, a television show or a movie, and it's obviously there's going to be a sequel or there's an next episode, they leave you hanging. Well, that's kind of what Luke's going to do when we get to the end of chapter 28 is he doesn't tell us anything about what happens to Paul. But these last chapters are going to be really cert, uh, keying in on his life, those last days of his life in terms of going to Rome, getting to Rome, and the ministry that he has in Rome. And he's going to write at least three of his letters from Rome. But we're going to look at his life this morning, and I want to kind of look at the end of chapter 26. We're going to do 24, 25, and 26, but I want to fast forward because this kind of sets up what we're going to talk about this morning. We know from last week, Matt kind of brought us to the point where he is in Caesarea. He has just gotten to Caesarea. He's going to appear before Felix, the governor. He's also going to end up meeting another governor named Festus, and we'll talk about them. He's going to meet a gentleman named King Agrippa, and we'll learn about him as well this morning. So he's going to meet these men who are all part of the Roman government. They're all very powerful. They all have a lot of uh, say in what happens to his life. And what's really interesting is how Paul responds to these very powerful men. So we know at the end of chapter 26, it says, the king, Agrippa, the governor, Bernice, the governor's wife, and all others stood and left. And as they went out, they talked it over and they agreed, this man, Paul, has done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. So we're going to backtrack in just a second, and we're going to see some of these hearings or trials that he had before the governors and before the king. And over and over again, they keep saying, what? Well, there's, he hadn't done anything. It's very reminiscent of Jesus, right? When Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate goes, I think he's innocent. I can't find anything guilty in this man, making him worthy of death. Well, the same thing is true of Paul. And then Agrippa said to Festus, the king says to the governor Festus, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now, what we're going to find out as we go backwards in a second is that Paul made an appeal to go to Caesar. Why? Because he's a Roman citizen. And he's been under trial. It started in that scene in Jerusalem. You remember where he was there? He was going through a sacrifice. He was not doing anything wrong. And then he was spied by some Jews from Asia who saw him in the temple courtyard. And they immediately thought he's in violation of temple rules because he hangs out with Gentiles and he's bound to have some with him. And so he's hauled out, he's beaten, he's saved by the Romans, and he ends up going before the governor. And he's going to eventually appeal to Caesar and say, I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve to be treated fairly. I have rights. I get due process. And so what we're going to see in these chapters is it's him headed to Caesar, headed to Rome. What's interesting is if you think about King Agrippa, he's the king of Judea. He's an appointment by the Roman government, the Caesar himself. 
when he says, if he had not appealed to Caesar, we would have let him go. Is he right? Well, in his mind, he's right because he thinks, well, I'm king. I can do whatever I want. But what we're going to see is this collision of two different worldviews here, God's worldview and his worldview, man versus God. And I don't think he really does know that he could have let Paul go because what does Paul know in his heart? Because the Holy Spirit's placed it there. I'm headed to Rome and nothing was going to stop him. Even the king wasn't going to be able to stop this. Even though he thought he was not guilty, he wasn't going to stop it. And what the other interesting thing is, did Paul make a mistake when he appealed to go to Caesar? You know, if Paul, Paul had overheard this comment by Agrippa, when he turns to the governor and Bernice and he says, well, you know, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. If Paul had heard that, would he gone, oh, dadgummit, why did I ever appeal to Caesar? No, I think Paul knew that I'm supposed to go to Rome. This is God's will. And the only reason I beat that drum this morning is that, guys, we have to get it through our heads that God has a divine will. God has sovereignty over everything. And sometimes we think, well, if I'd have just done this differently, if I had just not done this or done this, it would be different. And at the end of the day, you have to learn, and I have to learn, to trust that God has a divine will. He has a divine plan. And he had one for Paul's life as well. So this um, lesson this morning is called, To Caesar You Shall Go. That's basically what he's told by the governor, that you appeal to Caesar, you're going to go to Caesar. But it's not the will of men, it's the will of God that he go before Caesar. God uses men. God uses us. But at the end of the day, it's God's will that really is important that we need to really get a grip on. So back in chapter 23, and I just want to go back a little bit to what Matt talked about last week. Paul says this. He goes, you know very well I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. I didn't do anything. And you're going to hear him over and over again in 24, 25, and 26. I did nothing. I'm innocent. He said, if I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. Kill me. If I'm guilty, kill me. I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to die for something I didn't do. He says, if I'm innocent, no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. This is where he made the appeal. Because what does he know? If I go back to Jerusalem for trial, I'm a dead man. Why? What did Matt tell us last week? Forty men had made a vow that they would not eat, they would not drink until they killed Paul. And the Sanhedrin had agreed to help him. So he knows if I go back to Jerusalem for a trial, the trial's not going to kill me. These men will. And so I'm not going to go to Jerusalem and be killed for something I didn't do. If I go to Rome and I'm killed for sharing the gospel, I'm okay with that. And so he just keeps claiming his innocence. And so what does Festus do? The governor, he says, very well, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. You're on your way. 
So what I want us to see in this, this study this morning is that there's a bigger thing going on than just Paul and the Sanhedrin or Paul and the governor or Paul and Agrippa or Paul and the Romans. There's something even bigger. And it's, it's Rome against what? The rule of Christ. Human rulers against Christ. And, and it's the same thing true today, right? We look around our world and we see all these people who have power. We, we see all these people who think they're in control. But as Christians, we have to believe, as bad as things may appear, that Christ is still in control. God is still in his throne. He knows what's happening and we have no reason to fear, regardless of what's happening. You're going to see Caesar pitted against God. You're going to see kingdoms of this earth pitted against the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a rhetorical question, but in all these scenarios, who wins? Right? It's God, right? But in our hearts, don't we sometimes think, God, man, God's in trouble. God's, God's kind of lost his grip. Things are really spinning out of control. Things really look grim. The church is really struggling. They, evil's winning. And again, we have to remind ourselves, and part of the reason I think Luke penned this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to remind you and I that it didn't matter how bleak things got for Paul, God was in control. He's going to get to Rome. He wanted to go. The Spirit told him he was going to go, and he's going to go. And you're going to see these kingdoms collide, human authority versus God's sovereignty, and God's sovereignty always wins. And there's no reason we should worry. And if you look at Paul and his reactions all throughout these chapters, he's not worried. He's not panicked because he knows that God's in control. So we're going to see a couple of guys. We've already mentioned their names. We're going to see Felix, Antonius Felix, and Herod Agrippa II. And I just want to take a second to kind of outline who these guys are because they're key players in the story. So Antonius Felix is the governor. He's the first governor that Paul's going to meet. He's a Greek freedman. That means he used to be a slave. He's Greek. He was a slave. He was set free. And he ends up, interestingly enough, working for the mother of the emperor Claudius. He's on her payroll. He's part of her staff. We don't know what he did for her, but uh, it was probably his father or somebody who got brought into the household. They worked for the mother of Claudius and he ends up, he and his brother grow up with Claudius. So they meet Claudius when he's a young boy and they become playmates. So they grow up in the royal household long before Claudius ever becomes emperor. And he's eventually, once Claudius does become emperor, he's appointed governor of Judea by Claudius, his boyhood friend. So you see this kind of interesting play of characters. And, and once again, I see the hand of God weaving all this together. He's recommended for his position by the high priest. And you're going to see the interesting play there between Rome and Jerusalem, Rome and the Jewish government, the religious leaders. Now, this guy was known for immorality. He's known for greed. He's known for corruption. He's, he's not a good guy but he's in power. Now, how many times have we seen that played out? You know, that people get in government and they're not good guys. They shouldn't be there, but they are. And they use their greed and their immorality and their corruption to corrupt the government. Well, that's exactly what he does. His lifestyle, his mode of operation ends up polluting Judea. And corruption and immorality and greed is rampant throughout the land. 
And he's the guy that's, we're not going to get into it this morning, but he's the guy that tries to, he keeps meeting with Paul, hoping that Paul will pay him a bribe. And the scriptures even tell us he's waiting for money to change hands. You want, you want to be set free? Just pay me something. He's greedy. He's corrupt. Well, who's Herod Agrippa? He's actually Herod Agrippa II. He's an Edomite. He's kind of a close relative of the Jews, but he's not a Jew. And he's raised in the imperial court. He's another guy that just happens to get raised in the imperial court. He's a great-grandson of Herod the Great. Now, who's Herod the Great? You remember the story where Jesus is born and the Magi come, the wise men come, and they show up and they talk to Herod, the king, the king of Judea, and they said, we're here to recognize the king of the Jews. And he's like, well, tell me, where's this guy? Where is he? I want to worship him. Well, no, he doesn't. He wants to kill him. Well, they are warned in a dream not to tell him, and so he ends up killing or commanding the death of all Jewish babies two years and under in the area where Jesus would have been born. So we know that Herod Agrippa II comes from great stock. Okay, he's got a great lineage going on here. He gets appointed the king of Judea. Now he's an Edomite, he's not a Jew, and he becomes the king of Judea. Now how do you think the Jews felt about that? Didn't like it. They weren't fans of Herod Agrippa. They weren't fans of Herod the Great. But he's appointed by Rome. He had direct supervision over the temple. He, he controlled the temple. And he also appointed the high priest. So you see this connection between even he and Felix. He appoints the high priest. The high priest Jonathan is the one who made the recommendation to Claudius to promote his boyhood friend. And so it's like Peyton Place. You know, for you guys old enough to remember Peyton Place, it's, it's this really weird concoction and blend of all these different personalities. And to cap it all off, his sister, Drusilla, is married to Felix, the governor. So it's like this weird, weird blending of lives. Again, I see the hand of God all over this. And his wife, Bernice, was actually his sister. So Agrippa's having an incestuous relationship with his sister. Now, he's a really high moral guy as well. So here's the two guys, two of the guys that we're going to see that Paul's going to meet before. And then we're not going to see him this morning, but he's mentioned Caesar. And it's this guy, Claudius. He's kind of interesting because he takes the throne after the assassination of Caligula. Now, you, you may be familiar with that name because he's like the worst of the worst of the worst of all the Caesars. And you talk about immorality, he was in immorality incarnate. And so this guy takes his place. And what's interesting about Claudius is that Claudius, we don't know what it was, but he had some kind of disfigurement from birth. And he was awkward, clumsy, he drooled. Um, it was so bad, his family made fun of him. And they wouldn't let him out in public. And at dinner... They would play games where they, when, when he wasn't looking, they would throw food at him and try to get him to guess who threw the food and hit him. I mean, this, imagine what this, how warped this guy was by the time he got to be Caesar. He's a little hacked, a little, little peevish. But this is going to be the Caesar. He was shunned. He was set aside. And he spent most of his childhood playing with ex-slaves, slaves, and foreigners because nobody else, nobody in his family wanted to play with him. 
So he grew up kind of he grew up kind of lonely, and yet he becomes what the most powerful man in the world at that time. So back in chapter twenty three, verse thirty one, it says that night, as ordered. This takes us back to how does he get to Caesarea, Paul? The soldiers took Paul as far as Antipatris. They returned to the fortress the next morning while they mounted troops, took him on to Caesarea. When they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul with a letter to the governor Felix. You remember the Roman soldier who was in charge of Paul's care wrote a letter to Felix saying, hey, there's a problem here. This guy was almost beaten to death by the Jews. He's a Roman citizen. He, he needs to have a trial. I'm not equipped to do a trial, so he's coming to you. And, and Paul becomes like a, a hot potato. He just keeps being pawned off on somebody else and eventually to Caesar. So he's going to appeal before Felix. He reads the letter. He finds out that Paul's from Cilicia. He says, I'll hear your case myself. I'll listen to your case when your accusers, the Sanhedrin, get here from Jerusalem. So he's basically saying, I'll get to the bottom of this, but I need to hear from those who have accused you. And, and Matt did a great job of unpacking those accusations, and we're going to hear them over and over again even this morning. So he gets thrown in prison yet again. Five days later, here comes Ananias, the high priest, who appointed him to his post, King Agrippa. There's a love affair between the Sanhedrin and Rome. They'd say they hate him, but at least Ananias owes his job to Rome, and particularly to Agrippa. So they show up, and they bring this guy named Tertullus. We don't know a whole lot about Tertullus, other than that he's described here as a lawyer. He's not really a lawyer like we would think of today, but he performs kind of the role of a lawyer in this case. He's a paid professional orator. He's, he's a speaker. That's what he does. And he's a very, evidently very articulate. He's very smart. And he's taken all those accusations that we looked at last week, and he's packaged them in such a way that he can present them on behalf of Ananias, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin against Paul to the governor. So he's, he's basically there to act as a prosecuting attorney. He's a paid professional. This is what he does. And you're, you're going to see Paul represent himself. Has anybody ever represented themselves in a trial? You, you know, please don't. It's not something you should probably do. It's not a wise move. Now, for Paul, he could pull it off, and he does a great job. But it's probably not something you and I should try if you ever get called into court, use an attorney. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From the lips of an attorney. Um, so what happens? As Paul appears before Felix, he's going to end up appealing before Festus. He's going to end up appealing, appearing before Agrippa. One of the things he keeps saying is, I'll tell you what I did. I didn't do any of the things they've accused me of, but I will tell you what I did do. And here in verse 14, he says, I admit that I follow the way. What's the way? Well, the way of Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I follow the way, which they call a cult. It's not. I worship the God of our ancestors. I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. What's Paul doing? He's telling the governor that, you know, I'll tell you what I am. I'm basically a Jew. And yes, I'm a follower of the way, but I worship the same God these guys do. I believe the same writings that they do, the writings of Moses, the writings of the prophets. I keep the law. I'm not um, a radical. I'm not a troublemaker. And then he says this thing in verse 15, I have the same hope in God they have. And this word hope's going to keep coming up. 
And Paul loves this word and he uses it for a particular reason. And he says, that hope is based on something particular that he, God, will do what? He will raise the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, what does that word raise refer to? The resurrection. Now, two weeks ago, I hammered this pretty hard that Paul loved to talk about the resurrection. Why did he like to talk about the resurrection? Because the resurrection is key to his faith system. It's key to our faith system. And so he's going to keep bringing it up even now, standing before the governor, who probably doesn't have a clue as to what he's talking about. But he's telling the Sanhedrin that, you know what, guys, what this all boils down to, why you hate me so much, is this fact that I keep going back to the resurrection. And not just a resurrection of um, the body, but the resurrection of a particular body. Who's? Jesus. Because again, guys, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we have no hope, as Paul says in Corinthians. So he keeps going to this issue, the issue of hope. The resurrection is key to Paul's hope. It's, it's why he is who he is. It's why he does what he does. It's why he believes what he believes. It's everything in his life is based on what? The resurrection. The resurrection of the dead. Now, what's interesting, and we'll see it this morning, is that Paul knew that the Sanhedrin was made up of two groups. There were Sadducees and Pharisees. The high priest was always a Sadducee. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. Why? Because in their economy, their religious economy, what they believed was the body is bad, the soul is good. So if you die, your sinful body decays, which it should, which is good and just, but your soul lives on. The resurrection to them was, made no sense because why would God resurrect evil, the body, and re-blend it with the soul? So they rejected the resurrection of the body. They believed in the afterlife. They just didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. The Pharisees did. And so Paul is bringing this up yet again because even within the leadership, the religious leadership of the Jews, there's a debate over this thing of the resurrection of the dead. But for Paul, it's key. Because if he's not risen, if he died and he didn't rise again, we don't have a savior. We don't have a Messiah. And what's he been saying for years now, everywhere he's gone, Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the whole reason he's, he's in trouble here is because he claims that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, what, what does Tertullus, this professional orator, say? He says, we found this man to be a troublemaker. He, he causes trouble everywhere he goes. He stirs up riots. He, he's a, um, a malcontent. He's a radical. He's a revolutionary. And it's all over the world. Now, why did he make that point? He's a, he's a great prosecuting attorney. He knows his audience. Who's he talking to? Felix. Felix is a Roman governor. Felix has to answer to who? The Caesar. And one of the things the Caesars don't want is trouble in their world. They control the world. And so what he does is that he's a, he's a troublemaker. He stirs up riots everywhere he goes, all over your world. And Caesar's not going to like this. See, he's appealing to a really high call here. He's saying... Hey, Felix, you don't want news to get to Rome that you're harboring a guy who is raising dissension 
in the Roman world. And he says he's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. And then he lays the last thing on, which is the important thing for him as a prosecuting attorney is that he tried to desecrate the temple. So if you don't want to do anything about him being a radical and a revolutionary and stirring up trouble in the Roman world, then we have a right to have him put to death because he desecrated the temple. It was the one thing that they could go to Rome and say, we want this person killed because they desecrated the temple and Rome had agreed to do it. No questions asked. So he presents his case. And so the governor motions for Paul and he says, okay, it's your turn. Defend yourself. What does he say? I know, sir, that you've been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. He says, I am, I'm more than happy to tell you my defense. I'm more than happy to tell you what really happened because they've told you their view. Now here's my view. And he basically just says, yes, I did go to Jerusalem. I didn't argue with anyone in the temple. I didn't stir up a riot in the synagogue or in any of the streets. These men cannot prove a single thing they've accused me of. Now that's pretty important, right? It should be important in a trial that you better have just cause. You better have ample proof because I don't know about what it was like then, but at least in our system, it's you're innocent until proven guilty. Well, as a Roman citizen, that's the way he should have been treated, that they better have ample proof. If you're going to put me to death as a Roman citizen, they better be able to prove that I did any of these things. And he basically says they can't. Once again, I admit I follow the way. They call it a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors. I believe the Jewish law, everything written in the prophets. I am a good Jew. I did nothing wrong. I'm not a troublemaker. I don't stir up riots. I don't deserve to die. I just have hope. I believe in the way. I believe the same things they believe. And he just, he, he nails them because he says, guys, you're basically, all you're angry about is one thing, the resurrection of the dead, because the resurrection of the dead is tied to the resurrection of Jesus, which is tied to him being the Messiah and the savior of the world. And you crucified him. And now you reject him and you're rejecting me as his messenger. So it always goes back to this idea of the hope, the hope of Jesus being the Messiah, the resurrected Lord. Well, this takes us back to Romans, uh, to Acts chapter 23, verse six. And Paul's a pretty smart cookie because he did this once before when he was appearing before the Sanhedrin. You remember when he got in trouble and got dragged out of the temple courtyard and was being beaten, then he got saved by the Romans. Well, that Roman guard took him before the Sanhedrin to hear what's going on. And Paul, being a former Pharisee, knew that the Sanhedrin, the high council, was made up of Jews, made up of uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. One group believes in the resurrection of the dead, one doesn't. So when Paul gets a chance to speak, what does he say? Paul realized that some members of the high council were Sadducees, some were Pharisees, so he shouted, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. What does that automatically do to the crowd? It divides them. It polarizes them, right? Half of them are Sadducees, half of them are Pharisees. And he goes, hey, I'm a Pharisee. He's just won over half the crowd. And then what does he say? As were my ancestors. I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. What immediately happened when he did this? A fight. Sadducees against Pharisees. 
Because one group doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, one does. And the ones who do automatically said, this guy did nothing wrong, he should be set free. They side with Paul against their own members of the, the Sanhedrin. See, Paul's pretty smart. He polarizes the opposition. And suddenly they're fighting. It's what a lot of people who believe that, that this is not a political statement, but um, who believe that somebody's been tampering with the election system here in America. And the reason they did it was to polarize America, to turn Americans against Americans. What a great way to destroy a country. Let's just all fight. We don't have to do anything. Let's just watch them kill each other. That's essentially what Paul did here is he just set them against one another and the, it divided the council and they start fighting. And once again, the poor Roman guard has to, okay, let's get him out of here again. They're going to kill him. And he's rescued. I am on trial because of my hope. My hope in what? The resurrection of the dead. But ultimately, the resurrection of a particular dead person, Jesus Christ. But it all goes back to the idea of resurrection. So once again, we fast forward. Paul's standing before the governor, and he says what? Ask these same men, the same men I stood before in Jerusalem and watched fight with one another, ask them. Ask these men what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of. Except that one time I shouted, I'm on trial before you because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. He's referring back to chapter 23, that event that happened in Jerusalem. What got them riled up? It's when I said, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that's why I'm here. And we can't lose sight of that. Why did Jesus die? Because he claimed to be the Messiah. Remember what was put on that plaque above his head? The king of the Jews? And what did the Jewish leadership say to Pilate? Take that down. And he goes, no. What's up there is up there. It's not coming down. It was a prophetic statement. It was a, it was a confirmation that Jesus Christ died because he was the king of the Jews and they didn't want him to be. Paul is saying basically the same thing. Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. He's the Messiah. And it's all based on what? The resurrection. Well, verse 24, a few days later, Felix comes back to him with his wife, Drusilla, and they have like a little private meeting with Paul. Now, we know the reason he's having this little private meeting is, is he hoping Paul will give him some money. He's greedy. He's corrupt. So he sends for Paul. They listen as he, he listen to this. What does he tell them? Paul gets a chance to appear before Felix. If I'm appearing before the governor, am I, am I, I'm on trial, falsely accused, what am I going to do? I'm going to defend myself yet again. Well, what does Paul do? Paul tells them about faith in Christ Jesus. Then he goes, and he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control in the coming day of judgment. And Felix became frightened. Now, what I want you to see in this, guys, is that I don't know that you're ever going to get a chance to appear before a king, a prince, um, the president, anybody in high power, but how would you handle that? What I want you to see is how does Paul handle it? He doesn't take advantage of this little private meeting and beg for his life or try to convince him once again that I'm innocent. What does he do? He tells him about faith in Christ Jesus. How did he view Felix? You may be governor, you may be appointed by the, the Caesar, but you are lost and going to hell. And you need to know something I know. 
faith in Christ Jesus. And then he, he outlines it. He talks about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment. And it scares Felix. Why? What about that scares him? Well, we can imagine judgment. Even though he's not a, a believer, he's not a Jew, he's probably not a religious man, he's corrupt, he's immoral. One of the things that all people fear is judgment of any kind, right? I don't care who you are, we all fear judgment. If you cheat on your income tax, you fear getting caught by the IRS, right? If you get a, a letter in the mail from the IRS, you don't go, money. No, you think I'm gonna have to appear and I'm gonna have to fess up to what I've done. We all fear judgment. And so what's interesting is that he mentions three things to Felix and his wife. Three things in particular, righteousness, self-control, and the coming day of judgment. And it says it frightened Felix. And here's what should be true. Every time you share the gospel, if you share it appropriately, it should do one of two things. It should either frighten someone or it should comfort someone. You're gonna get one of those two reactions. And that's exactly, I think, what happened here. And what's interesting is that when Jesus was about to leave, he said this to his disciples. We've talked about this before. He said, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of its sin, God's righteousness, and the coming judgment. Almost identical to what Paul's saying to this Roman governor. Sin, God's righteousness, and coming judgment. See, here's what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus promised it, and we've seen it live itself out in action. He convicts the world of its sin. Now, what does that mean? Um, everybody believes in sin. They may not call it sin, but everybody knows we make mistakes. Everybody knows that there's rules that we're supposed to keep. Uh, your rules may vary from my rules, but there's, there's rights and wrongs. Well, the Holy Spirit comes in and he says, I'm going to tell you exactly what sin is. And you might not think it's sin, but it is. He defines it. He clarifies it. He convicts people of it. He convicts the world of God's righteousness. What does that mean? Well, everybody has an idea of what's right and wrong. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter what you think is right or wrong. Doesn't matter what I think is right or wrong. Doesn't matter what our government thinks is right or wrong or a celebrity or some sports star. It doesn't matter. It matters what does God think is right or wrong. There's only one definition of righteousness and God gets to define it. And so he convicts the world of that and he convicts the world about the coming judgment. There are those who say there's no such thing. It isn't gonna happen. We're Scott, we get off scot-free. We just die. We go into a black hole and it's over. Well, no, the Holy Spirit comes and says, you know what, there is a judgment. And I think when Paul started talking about these things before Felix, why would he get frightened? Because he's immoral, he's corrupt, he's decadent, he's self-centered, he's into pleasure. And suddenly he had to start thinking about judgment. The NLT puts it this way, he will prove the world wrong, he, the Holy Spirit, will prove the world wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, one of the things the Holy Spirit has to do in your life and my life prior to coming to Christ is he has to show me I'm wrong about all three of these things. Well, I'm not a sinner. Oh, yeah, you are. I don't need righteousness. I'm already righteous. Oh, no, you're not. And I'm not worried about the judgment. Well, you should be. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And until the Holy Spirit does that in someone's life, they'll never really accept the gospel because they don't think they need it. Why was it that Jesus over and over again spoke of himself being the Messiah and the Jewish leadership kept rejecting him? 
because they rejected these three things. We don't think we're sinners. We're righteous. We don't need God's righteousness. We don't need your righteousness. We're already righteousness. We're children of God. And we aren't worried about the judgment because we're his chosen people. And Jesus says, you know what? I can raise up rocks to replace you. And those rocks would have less sin than you do. See, it's all about this. And that's why I think he was so hammered by what Paul had to say. Now, I blogged through the book of Acts. I finished just really a couple of weeks ago. So I, I want to read you just what impressed me when I was going through this earlier about a month ago. Each of us has a personal perspective on what's right or wrong. We may not call it sin, but we inherently know that there are some things that are off limits and unacceptable in terms of behavior. For the most part, all men live with a mindset that if you sin, do what's wrong, there will be consequences. If you do what's righteous or good and acceptable, you'll be rewarded. Thus, the judgment. Wired into mankind is the God-created sense of right and wrong with the accompanying ideas of merit and punishment. See, it's in our DNA. We may think I get all my rewards in this life. I'm reading through the book of Ecclesiastes right now. And one of the things I think Solomon was really screwed up on was that he thought all rewards came now. Well, what do we know as believers? Our reward comes in the future. Doesn't mean we don't get blessings now, but this isn't all there is. And so this idea that we all know that there's rewards, we all know there's punishment, we may not understand that the greatest punishment we all face is in the future. And so I think when Paul was talking to Felix, he was obviously scared by what Paul had to say. Well, two years are going to go by, and a new governor is appointed, a guy named Festus. And in the meantime, Paul gets left in prison two more years. That sounds real fair, doesn't it? Sounds like things, things are going great for Paul at this point. Appears before Felix. Now he's in prison for two years. And a new guy shows up on the block, Portius Festus. And this is his picture. Uh, I couldn't resist. Uh, bottom line is, we don't know a whole lot about Portius Festus. Portius Festus is a pretty normal guy. He's basically a career diplomat. He's not immoral. He's not decadent that we know of. He's just there. But he becomes the next emperor, or not emperor, but the next governor, and Paul's going to get a chance to appear before him. So he shows up into town. He's new on the job. He's going to try to win over friends and, you know, make himself fit in. And so what does he do? He takes a seat in the court, orders Paul to be brought in. And when Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gather, and they, once again, make serious accusations. Their accusations never change. He's a troublemaker. He's done this. He's done that. He's desecrated the temple, blah, 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 same old thing. Paul denies the charges. I'm not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws, the temple, the Roman government. Then Festus, wanting to please the Jews because he's governor over the Jews, he says, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there? And what does Paul say? No. This is an official Roman court. I ought to be tried right here. I'm not going back to Jerusalem because I know what will happen if I go there. There are still people there that want me dead. Those 40 men who made the pact 40 years or, 40, um, or two years ago, I don't think they've been fasting for two years, but I think they can easily start it back up. So if he shows back up in town, they'll just renew their vow and, and Paul knows, I can't go there. I'm not guilty. I didn't do anything. If I've done anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent, I'm going to Caesar. We've already looked at this. So this is that, pat he's gone to Felix. Now he's in Borephestus. And this is when he appeals and he says, I'm going to Caesar. Well, to Caesar, you're going to go. 
you're on your way to Rome. But there's one more stop. Agrippa. We met him earlier. Agrippa gets brought in by Festus because Festus has a problem. He can't find anything worthy to have Paul killed. So therefore, he's appealed to go to Caesar. Well, if I send him to Caesar, I better give some defense as to why I'm sending him. But he can't figure anything out. So he calls in his buddy Agrippa and he says, would you listen to this and help me? Because I got to put something in a letter to send to Claudius. And I don't know what to say. I don't know what to accuse him of. And so he appears before King Agrippa. And he once again just says, I'm not a a troublemaker. I, I have a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood. If they would admit it, they know that I've been a member of the Pharisees. I'm on trial because of my hope and the fulfillment of God's promise. There it is again. What's he say? This is why I'm here, Festus. I told Felix, I told Festus, now I'm telling you Agrippa. It's because of my hope and the fulfillment of God's promise. The same promise, the same hope by our ancestors had, the 12 tribes had, I have. It's all about the resurrection. They share the same hope I have, yet your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why is it so incredible that they can't believe in the resurrection of the dead? Why can't they believe that God could do this? Even if you believe that the body is evil, can't God correct that and fix that? Why don't you trust in God? Why don't you believe that God can raise the dead? So he just once again says, they tried to kill me, but I've been protected. Nothing's going to happen to me. But it all goes back to what? The Messiah. He was raised from the dead. See, see, even before the king, even before two different governors, he keeps going back to the resurrection. He keeps going back to the hope that he has, which is what we should do. That's where we should go. And then I love this. It says that Agrippa turns and says, are you trying to make me a Christian? What are you, what are you nuts? You think you're going to convince me to become like you? And what does Paul say? You know what? Whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. What's Paul saying? Yeah, I wish you would become just like me. I wish you had what I had. What's he saying? He's saying, I may be in chains, but I'm free. You may be free, but guess what? You're captive. If the sun sets you free, you're truly free. Paul didn't care if he's in chains because he knew he's free. But Agrippa and Festus were free, but guess what? They're captive to sin. You become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. Decadence, immorality, your own power. These two men were captives to sin and death. Paul wrote in Romans, because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And then he says in chapter six, now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life. What does Paul want desperately for these men? Salvation. See guys, you may never appear before a king. You may never appear before a governor, a, um, a president, but you appear before people every day who need to hear this message. They need to hear the hope of the resurrection. They need to hear about Jesus Christ. They need to hear about sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And they need to hear about freedom that's found in Christ. So here's your questions for this morning. Who are the Caesars in modern day America? Who who are they? And I don't want you to dwell on the individual. Don't throw out somebody's name and then spend the next half hour, you know, debating that individual. But who are the Caesars out there that run the world as we know it? In other words, who, who or what stands opposed to us as we attempt to obey the will of God 
And what does this lesson tell us today? See, I can get mad at the government and I can get mad at individuals in the government, but do I pray for those individuals? Do I long for them to come to faith in Christ? How can a wrong understanding of sin, righteousness, and judgment negatively impact your spiritual life? What are some ways in which we have wrong views about these three things? And then finally, it was Paul's desire that Festus and Agrippa experience what he had, freedom in Christ. This is where it's going to get really personal. Why is it that we don't long for more people to have what we have? Could it be because we underappreciate the freedom we have? In other words, Paul loved his freedom. Paul knew he was free. He didn't matter that he was in chains. He wanted them to have what he had, freedom from sin, death, condemnation. Father, I pray for the men this morning as they talk around the table that they would be open and honest and that, Father, you would speak to them and through them and that, Father, we would walk out of this room with an understanding that we have hope because of the resurrection and we have a job to do to share the gospel and to be bold about it just like Paul was. It doesn't matter who we meet with, whether it's the president of our company, our neighbor, a lost friend, that we would see them as Paul did. Do you know what I know? Do you know who I know? Are you free from sin? So, Father, bless these guys as they, as they share, and we ask that you would be with us over the next week, and as we come back to wrap it up next week, that we could end well. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.